Jesus' ministry, again, as Mark gets into it, he's going to move very quickly. Mark begins by saying, he is the Son of God. He says, it's been proclaimed by the prophets, it's proclaimed by John the Baptist, it's proclaimed by God himself at his baptism, it's demonstrated out in the wilderness when Jesus Christ goes out to be tempted and defeats the devil in those temptations and is holy and righteous in everything that he's been told that we've been told that he would be. And then we get to verses 14 and 15 as he begins his ministry and he begins preaching the gospel. And we talked last week about the importance of that gospel message that would change those lives. And now we get to verses 16 through 28. And instead of slowing down, it takes off with Jesus' ministry spreading. And it spreads with the same theme that Mark has begun the chapter with. Again, if we're not careful, you get into Mark chapter 1 and you get lost with all these events, one after another, so quickly happening in the life of Christ, and you fail to see how they're all tied together. See, Mark has a reason he's going to tell us the next few things that happened in Jesus' ministry. The Holy Spirit is prompting him to do this because Mark has begun with that huge statement in the beginning, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's been attested to being that, now he's going to prove it. He proves it in his preaching in verses 14 and 15, and now he's going to prove it along the way. Number one is he begins choosing his followers. That's kind of an interesting event when we look at where it fits in the book. You see Jesus at his baptism, and just a glorious event with the heavens opening up and the dove descending, the spirit descending as a dove on Jesus Christ, and the Father crying out, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He goes out into the the desert and defeats the devil with all that temptation that comes his way. And now you would expect some grand and glorious events and miracles to be the next thing that Mark recounts. Because he's a man of action. But Mark is going to take a step back and say, let me show you the authority of Jesus. Number one, by the way he chooses his followers. And then, number two, in the way that he teaches Now, the interesting thing is we look through the book of Mark, you're not going to get much of the content of what he taught. You want to get the content of what he taught, open up Matthew, open up Luke, some in the book of John. But Mark is going to concentrate more not on what he taught, but on who taught it and why it's important for us to take that message and listen to it. And then he's going to show Jesus Christ's authority over demons. And then next week as we get into it, over disease and, and health and all of these things, Jesus Christ is God. He's Lord. He's in control. And he brings this huge, glorious picture to chapter 1, verse 16, and begins it this way. He's just told us that Jesus Christ passed from the area of the Jordan up into Galilee and has been preaching. Now, in verse 16, almost matter-of-factly, he says this. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So here is Jesus walking along the northern coast to the Sea of Galilee. And as he walks along the coast, he looks out and he sees Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they're fishing because they were fishermen. Now, again, that word fishermen is an interesting word in the Greek because we think fishermen, okay, I go out on the weekend, I get in the boat, and I fish. That makes me a fisherman. But the idea here, as you look at the way this word is used, it's the idea more of this is an occupational thing, okay? Peter and Andrew are out there fishing, but it's not just for fun that they're out there fishing. They're casting their nets. They're making their living. 
And they must have made a halfway decent living doing it because later we find out that Jesus is going to go to Peter's home and he owns a home. So things are going well for Peter as far as we know with this whole fishing issue and what's going on here. And Jesus Christ looks, and wouldn't it be sad if it went from there to the story of the synagogue and the rest of this wasn't here? Jesus Christ went by, he saw Peter, he saw Andrew, he noticed they were fishing. What would happen if he had kept on walking? But in the will of God, in the plan of God, in Jesus' plan for his disciples and the way he's going to build his church, we see the first recorded act of his ministry here. It's not something sensational. It's calling simple men to follow him. Or is it more sensational? Let's take a step back and look at what's happening here as we see this story. Jesus Christ sees these men and look at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I want to look at three aspects of this call, because if we don't take the time to think about it, we just, matter of fact, we look, we look back at it and we say, well, of course, Peter and Andrew were disciples. And this is how it started. But go back to the day when Peter and Andrew were fishing. Were they looking for another occupation? Were Peter and Andrew expecting to leave their nets and start something brand new? They were having a midlife crisis and they had to start something new. No, that's not where Peter and Andrew are. They're fishing and fishing's what they knew. And fishing was their lives. And not only is this call interesting because of that, but most importantly, as we look at this call of Jesus and picking out his disciples, number one, Jesus is the unqualified subject of that call. When Jesus calls, he doesn't say, Peter and Andrew, become disciples and help plant the church, the early church. Help be pillars in the early church. He doesn't say, Peter and Andrew, I've got a new job for you. He does at the end, but he doesn't begin with, I've got a job opportunity. What does he say? Follow me. This this passage is all about Jesus Christ and following him. In fact, the way he calls them, we kind of miss it in the English. He's using an idiom in the Greek here, and there's no verb. I looked at that, I thought, this is going to really preach. What's that verb for follow and what does it mean? There's no verb there. There's an adverb, first of all, that basically means here. And so Jesus Christ looks at Peter and looks at Andrew and says, here. And then there's another word, a preposition. Now, some of you who aren't English majors and don't want to hear all that, but it basically puts you where the place is. And he says, here. And the word literally means behind me. Now, think about the miracle that's about to take place. What do we know about Peter? Is Peter a meek and mild follower? Peter's impetuous. Peter's a leader. You don't have to wonder what Peter's thinking. Okay, Peter lays it right out there for you. Peter throws his foot in his mouth more than any other disciple that I know as we go through these gospel messages. And isn't it interesting that the first disciple called in the book of Mark is Peter? Peter's fishing. Peter knows fishing. You have a topic that you know well. Is there something you know how to do very well and you're kind of proud of it? Not in a bad way. You know, you you like the fact that if that topic comes up with Peter, that topic was fishing. If you brought up fishing, Peter was the fishing expert. And Jesus Christ looks at Peter and Andrew and he says, here, behind me. And the force of that idiom, it is a command. Jesus Christ isn't giving him a suggestion. Now again, think about who we're dealing with. Was Peter good at following directions? Was Peter good at listening sometimes? I love Peter. 
I love Peter because I could see myself at times. And Peter would say, wow, I wish I'd listened closer. I wish I'd have gotten on board faster. But here is Peter, impetuous, leader, happy with what he's doing. And Jesus Christ looks at Peter and looks at Andrew in their boat actually fishing. If you look at the story, he was casting his net. He's doing what he loves to do. And he says to him, Peter and Andrew, I want you to stop. I want you to get behind me. And I want you to follow me. And what does the scripture tell us? Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. It's interesting because in the fact that the way this is happening is foreshadowing what Jesus is going to teach later in this book. We don't have a lot of his teaching, but we do have this. Turn over to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Sometimes we read these stories. We read the story of Peter and Andrew being called and think, well, this is very, very specific to them. And it is. And Jesus only works this way with them, but he doesn't. He's setting a pattern as he calls the disciples. And he's setting a pattern that he's going to talk about in Mark chapter 8, 34. He said, if anyone would come after me, the same idea, if anyone would come to me and get behind me. We're going to talk about that in a second, what he really means by that. He said, this is what it takes. If you would come, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What did he ask Peter and Andrew to do? And later James and John in the same passage. Guys, I know you love fishing, but I want you to deny what you love, and I want you to do what I want you to do instead. That's what it means to follow me. I am the one in authority. I'm the Lord. And not only that, it means sometimes you're going to have to take up your cross. It's not always going to be easy. For James and John, what does it tell us in that passage? They left their father at the boat. This was a family thing. And without hesitation, they left him and followed Jesus Christ. And then he said, and you're going to follow me. Now, if you didn't come for the videos that we had before we started this, you're missing a little bit of what that means. Because that's all in that genre, in that theme of the idea of having a rabbi and his followers in those days. And when you followed, in fact, I think the, the, the series that we watched was called In the Dust of the Rabbi. And the idea was you get behind Jesus and you follow him. And as Jesus, as the rabbi in this picture, you follow him because you want to be like him. Now, he's more than the rabbi, though. When you look at this story, who calls whom? Jesus calls the disciples. In his day, if you wanted to be a student of a rabbi, the student had to seek you out. The student had to try to get permission to be one of the followers of the rabbi. The student wanted to be like that rabbi and would choose him. And in this case, you get totally the reverse. Jesus goes out and says, you, get behind me and follow me. Learn to be like me. Learn to walk in my footsteps. It's more like the prophets than it is the rabbis. You remember Elijah? After all that discouragement that he had after uh, Mount Carmel and all the, the great victory, then he's discouraged and he just wants to die and God gets him up and gets him moving and says, okay, Elijah, you need to go pick out your successor and Elisha's waiting for you to come choose him. And the prophet Elijah goes and he picks his follower. A lot more like the prophet than just the rabbi. Jesus Christ is the great rabbi. He's also the prophet. He's also God the son. So when he calls, the interesting thing about this, we don't know exactly how old Peter was. We don't know exactly how old Andrew or James and John were. But they were old enough to be working the family business. And when Jesus Christ calls, how long did they take to answer that call? 
Again, this is Mark's favorite word in here. In verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. In verse 20, immediately he called to them, James and John, and they left their father in the boat and they followed him. Immediately these things are happening. And that tells us another thing. This is a call of grace. It's a gracious call. When God reached out and called these disciples to himself, did he call them and say, okay, now you've got to change your lives and make them what they ought to be before you can follow me? You know, you've got to get your, your morals all straight. You've got to get your relationships in society all straight. You think Peter had some issues with people? Think he ever rubbed people the wrong way? Did, did Peter and Andrew and James and John have things to learn when Jesus Christ called them? Jesus Christ called them to be his disciples. He said, what I want from you, immediate obedience to follow me in faith. And the rest will come along the way. And it does as we see the disciples, as we see them growing and, and working with Jesus Christ. He finds them where they are and he simply says, come. And they come and he changes them into what he needs to be. And again, it's a picture of what's supposed to be happening to us as we come to Jesus Christ. We come as we are. We come in faith. We come wanting to be what he wants us to be, but he doesn't say, make it so before you come to see me. It's my spirit who works in you that's going to do this. It's the word of God through sanctification that's going to make you more like Jesus Christ day in and day out, and it's going to be a process, and we're going to see that in the lives of the disciples, but it was a radical call for them to leave. Secondly, not only is it a call to Jesus Christ himself, but it's a call to service. Jesus Christ doesn't look at them and just say, come, get behind me and follow me. He says, come, get behind me and follow me. And then what's the next thing he says? And I will make you fishers of men. Did they really get all of what that meant when Jesus Christ said, well, make you fishers of men? No, and the idea in the Greek again is, I will make you to become fishers of men. Jesus looked at Peter, Andrew, James, and John and said, here's my raw material, but you guys aren't there yet. But you're going to be. You're going to walk with me. You're going to follow me. You're going to grow in the things that I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to make you to become fishers of men. And it was a slow, painful process for some of them. They had to learn to understand. Did they always understand when Jesus Christ taught them things? Right up until Calvary, did they get the fact that he was going to die and rise again? Peter tried to stop it just a few days before with a sword. And they didn't always get it, but they did in the end as God brought them along, as Jesus Christ continued to work with them. They had to learn to follow. They had to learn to suffer persecution. And as they're going through all of these things, Jesus Christ said, I want you to come, and the first thing you're going to have to do is learn who I am and be like me. And what did he say who he was and to be like him? What did we say was the theme verse of this whole, whole passage? The Son of Man came not to... He ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. To serve and to sacrifice. The title of what we're doing here as we look through this. And he said, I want a fundamental change in your lives. Do you think that was Peter before Jesus Christ called him? Was Peter there to minister to others? Was Peter there to sacrifice for other folks? I mean, Peter's a strong personality. He's got his act together in some ways, but other ways, you know, Peter's not exactly your best people person. Jesus Christ looks at him and he says, Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to teach you to go out and win men and women to the kingdom of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he leaves his nets. We look at James and John with their father. They leave their father and they leave the nets behind. They leave because Jesus Christ is the preeminent one in the call. It's not my family. It's not my occupation. I'm willing to do whatever it takes 
to be what Jesus Christ wants me to be. And that's what they're learning as they go through this. And then the third thing that we see, and it's a wonderful picture of what's about to come, as Jesus sets up for ministry, could Jesus have ministered by himself? Did Jesus need 12 disciples to make it happen? Did he not have the energy? Did he not have the power? I mean, you look at what's going on here. Does he not know how to teach and what to teach and when? I wish I could teach like Jesus Christ. Just to pick up the text and have the power of God and the words of God because I am flowing from me. And we're going to see that as we look through these amazing stories. But Jesus Christ, in God's plan, chooses to bring these 12 people because ministry and life with Jesus Christ is all about community and fellowship. And he's about to set up the church. Why do we get together? We get together to study. We get together, hopefully, to pray. We're going to talk about that next week when we look at what Jesus, the priority he puts on prayer. We get together to fellowship. And the reason we do that is God's created the church that way. To be a family. To be a fellowship. To be with one another. And so he starts with these men, these unlikely men. James and John, were they mild-mannered men? Sometimes we think of John that way, don't we? He wrote the, the Gospel of John, and he talks about, you know, he's the beloved disciple. James and John had a nickname. Anybody remember what it was? The Sons of Thunder. You know who gave them that name in chapter 3 of this book? Jesus did. So he takes the Sons of Thunder and puts them with Peter and says, we're going to have fellowship. And he's asking for trouble. But why does it work? Because Jesus is working in hearts. He's bringing it together. How does it work when we all get together and we can fellowship? Anybody have an idea different than somebody sitting across the pew from you? Don't tell me what it is. But you know, do we have opinions that don't always work together? And yet, Romans chapter 13, 14, 15, we need to learn to live together and work together because it's a community. It's a fellowship of people. And God does his work for the ministry through this community and fellowship of people. So a summary of what we're looking at here. Don't, I almost thought about stopping the sermon here because it's so important. What do we do with these things as we look at it? Because from now, at this point of the book, all the way up until Gethsemane, Jesus appears in narrative constantly accompanied by his disciples. When they leave their nets to follow him, they make a commitment to truly follow him. It's not that they added Jesus to their lives. It's not like, well, I can do this disciple thing on the weekends, but I'm going back to fishing during the week. He said, I am a disciple 24-7. And so they committed to Jesus Christ, and it changes their lives. Now, God may not be calling you to go into the ministry, but he's calling you to be a disciple 24-7. You can't just be a disciple Sunday morning while you're sitting here. I hope you are, but what about the rest of the week? And he's not necessarily calling you to leave your occupation, but he's calling you to be a disciple in your occupation, wherever you may be. Some of you are like, well, that's okay, because I'm retired. Yeah, most of you don't sit at home all week long and do nothing. He's expecting you to be a disciple as you circulate in your neighborhoods, as you circulate around your community, as you do all the things that you do. And so here we have these disciples doing these things. And it's interesting that it's crucial to the achievement of Jesus Christ's ministry that these men grow in their discipleship in Jesus Christ. Why? Could Christ have stayed and planted the early church? I mean, I look at this whole plan and I think, couldn't Christ have done a better job than Peter? 
helping to plan that early church. You think Peter's, Peter gets in trouble in Acts 2. He has a great day on Pentecost. But you get to Acts chapter 15, and Paul's getting in his face about he can't get this Jew and Gentile thing right yet. And yet God determined that he's going to do his work through frail people like me and you as we grow to be closer like Christ every day. And if you, you need to grasp that. Because so many of us think, well, you know, I don't serve the Lord much yet because I'm just not ready. God wants you to serve where you are, and he'll teach us, and he'll train us where we're ready, but he's got things we can do. There are people whose lives you can touch that I will never touch. And he wants us to go out, and he wants us to befriend people, and he wants to bring us to bring people to Christ, just like Andrew did. We don't even have the whole story here, but Andrew was a part of bringing folks to Jesus Christ. And that's what we ought to be doing, and we ought to be doing it now, not waiting till we're suddenly ready by some miraculous thing. And then as we trace the development of Jesus' disciples, we're going to see it throughout this whole book. Keep an eye on it, because there are days that they have great successes. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it joyful when you have a success in spiritual things? You know, and you're on the mountaintop. But what's the other side of that coin? These disciples have some miserable failures. Does Jesus Christ throw them out for their failures? Okay, you're fired. I'll get another one. You only had 12. You had all kinds of people you could have picked from. But he said, no, I'm committed to bringing you to where you need to be. Because these men, and then later the ones that they would win, would be the core of the church that would go on to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. These, and we're going to get their names in chapter 3 as we get all of them, but these 12 men that he picks out, 11 of them are going to get together and they're going to be known as the men that turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And they were fishermen. And they were tax collectors. And they were zealots. There was all kinds of trouble in that group and yet Jesus Christ took them and changed them. And made them into what they needed to be. And there's a message there for us. Those four men that we see it would become the core of the discipleship group. They would be the inner core. Especially the three of them. Peter, James, and John. The inner circle of Jesus Christ. And who did Jesus Christ choose for that? Did he go and get the most promising scribes of his day? They, were, they knew the law. They were respected. Did he go and get the most respectable people in the community? No, he went and got normal, everyday people and said, I want you and you and you. And he does the same thing today. It's not the wise. It's not the mighty. It's the simple. It's you and I. We have the opportunity to make a difference for Jesus Christ. If we'll grasp what's happening here. If we'll be what we ought to be. And again, the story of their call, remember, it's, it's all about relationship with Jesus Christ. Come and follow me. We've got a Christianity today, they want to come but not to follow me. I want to come and get forgiveness of sin. I want to come and get eternal life. I want my ticket out of hell and my ticket into heaven, and that's what I'm looking for, and then I want to be left alone so I can do whatever I want to do. And Jesus Christ said, no, come through all those things, but then you follow me. That's what disciples are. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And don't take 30 years to decide that. What does Mark say all that? Immediately, immediately, immediately. They followed him. They went after what they were supposed to be doing. They got in his, the dust of his trail and followed in his footsteps. And Jesus Christ changed their lives. So the call of these men, the disciples, I point to the authority of Christ. The fact that four men that headstrong on their own would immediately turn and follow Jesus Christ. That's the authority of who he is and the excitement of what he can do in their lives. And then we see the authority of Jesus not only through his disciples, but through his teaching. Look at verses 21 and 22. 
not far from where he called them, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Here Jesus comes, and he comes to Capernaum. And why Capernaum? Again, Mark doesn't tell us why Capernaum, but it is the chief city up on that northern end of the Sea of Galilee. There's a whole port that's built around that city. It's a city that's in the middle of a trade route, and it was a a very prosperous city. In fact, later on in in Matthew, in in Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 9, we find that Capernaum kind of becomes Jesus' residence after he leaves Nazareth and centers his ministry for a lot of his ministry out of Capernaum. And so all these things are happening, and I love the way that Mark puts this. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. Again, That immediately idea. Why is the haste and the immediately so important in that context? Where is he going? He's going to the synagogue. When is he going there? He's going there on the Sabbath. And again, I looked at that. Is there a message for us there? Jesus Christ, in the midst of his busy ministry and moving around, when it was time to be in the synagogue, Jesus Christ was there immediately. He was teaching. He was a part of the worship because they couldn't all go to the temple. So in any town where there was 10 or more Jewish males above the age of 13, they would have a synagogue, and that was their place of study, and that was their place of worship. And Jesus sets the tone with his disciples and says, immediately, it's the Sabbath, we're going to the synagogue. It was a priority. Is being in church a priority for you? Is it an immediate thing? Do we plan our lives around making sure we are where we ought to be, where the word of God is preached, when there's singing, when there's worship, when there's prayer going on? Or is it a, well, if it's convenient, I'll be there. It's not that way for Jesus Christ. The idea there is urgency immediately on the Sabbath. He heads to the synagogue because that's where God's going to be worshipped. That's where people are going to be taught. That's where his disciples needs to, need to be. That's where he as the Son of God needs to be. And so here he is immediately on the Sabbath being there. And Mark's focus is on the one who's teaching again and not on what he taught. You ever wonder what he taught? I, look at these verses. It says here, "...and they were astonished at his teaching." And my spirit wants to say, why? What did he say? What am I missing? Well, it's in here. It's not in Mark, but it's in there. We can look at it in other places. But it's not only the fact of what he was teaching, but how he was teaching it. You look at there, and you see, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. What is Mark trying to tell us there? Mark's telling us that when Jesus Christ opened up the truth, and he didn't open up the New Testament, it wasn't there yet, but when he opened up the truth, he spoke as one who was authoritative because he spoke as the Son of God. Can you imagine sitting under the teaching of the very Son of God as he's speaking? You you ever get to the end of the sermon and say, well, that was a good idea for the pastor, but I don't think that was kind of right, so I'm not going to apply that to my life. You know, the pastor can believe that, but you don't get to do that with the Son of God. And as he's teaching, he's teaching with authority because it is the authority of God and the truth of God that he's teaching and not as the scribes. What did they mean by that? The scribes were experts in the law. They were also experts in Jewish tradition and the elders. And when the scribes had to tell you, this is why you need to obey the law, they would often quote all of these elders and important Jewish people from the past. Does Jesus Christ do that when he teaches? Not from what we can tell, because they looked and said, no, this guy has authority. This teaching is amazing. This teaching is different than anything we ever heard, because this teaching is the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
And as Jesus Christ brings this teaching, they're amazed at it. In fact, they say this in verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. I say that because the teaching with authority came because Jesus Christ brought the very words of God. Is there something in there for us? One of the reasons that I try as much as I can, I put my effort into it all the time, is to expositionally preach through the books, book by book, is because that's where the authority comes from. It it breaks my heart at times because I've been pastoring for seven years now and I've only been in a couple of churches, but I thought everybody did it that way. People keep coming and saying, wow, I haven't heard anybody in a long time preach through a passage verse by verse like that. And I keep thinking, well, what do they do then? You know, it's, their, their opinion doesn't matter. That's what the scribes were doing. Their thoughts on current events don't matter. Now, if this book speaks to the current events, that matters. But the pastor's hobby horse and thoughts, and, and there's places, I guess, for topical preaching, but we have to be careful when we preach topically all the time because the topics tend to be what we want to teach instead of what God wants to teach. You know what I've learned in seven years, and I say that learned because I'm not proud enough to think I had it down. I've learned that when you go expositionally, verse by verse through verses, God knows who needs the truth and when they need it. And I've preached messages more than once thinking, Lord, I just don't know why I'm preaching this today. It doesn't seem like this is, this doesn't just, it just doesn't move me. And then somebody will walk out the door and say, that's exactly what I needed. And it wasn't because of me. And it wasn't because of a bright idea. It's because of this book. And when Jesus taught, he taught this book so much better. And he taught it with authority. And he knew exactly what hearts needed. And he took the word of God and hit the heart of people with the word of God. And they stood there amazed. And that's what we need to have now. We need to get into this book and let it teach and speak to our hearts just as the authority of Jesus Christ did. And stand amazed at the way God still speaks to us today. Isn't it amazing that you can open up the book of Mark and it can be as practical for you today as it was 2,000 years ago when it was written? That's because it's God in there. And God is giving us his word. And he's giving us his principles. And it's the authority of God that's behind all that's happening here. So you get Jesus Christ, his authority and his call of the disciples. He's the son of God. Fishermen, bullheaded, strong leaders drop everything they're doing to follow him. He's authoritative in his teaching. He walks into a very large synagogue in Galilee. And he begins teaching and people stand amazed and say, what is this? This is a new teaching and it's amazing. It's not like what we normally get. And now we get this in the middle of the service. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Now, I read that, and I thought, first thing I thought of was, well, where were the deacons and the, and the, the security team? They should have got that guy out of there. You know, what's he doing there? What he's doing there is he's about to demonstrate the authority of Jesus Christ one more time. Not only because of the way he calls his disciples, not only because of the way that he teaches the word, but in the middle of that, we suddenly have a man who is demon-possessed crying out. Now, again, I look at that and say, did he just show up, or has he been there all the time? Has he been sitting there? Did people know he was demon-possessed? Evidently, they had a pretty good idea because they're going to say in verse 27, he even casts out demons. Well, they're going to find out through at least the discussion that he's having here. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us any of that. What's Mark telling us? He's telling us that there, sitting under the teaching of Jesus, is a demon-possessed man. And at some point in that preaching and that teaching, that demon could no longer handle the truth that was there. And he cries out. 
He interrupts Jesus Christ in his teaching. And he cries out a couple of things. Look at what he does. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He's got two different titles for him in this short, short, short statement that he makes. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth in the beginning. And what does he call him at the end? The Holy One of God. Now again, who is Jesus dealing with here? A demon. And as the demon comes and he begins to interrupt him, as he hears this truth that he can look around and see people's hearts being moved. And so he cries out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why would that be such an important phrase for him to spit out at that point in the middle of truth being taught? You're just a carpenter's son from a disdained village that even your own people don't think much of. So what are you doing? What are you doing here with us, Jesus? And then the realization of what's really behind all this. Have you come to destroy us? How many times does Jesus confront demons and they say, is it time now? Have you finally come? They know where they're headed. They know that they've been reserved for judgment. They know that there's a lake of fire for all of eternity waiting for the devil and his angels. And as they look, they say, have you come to destroy us now? And then he cries out, I know you are the Holy One of God. Isn't it interesting that a demon's probably the first one in that synagogue, other than maybe his disciples, to realize who Jesus is? And he cried out, I know you're the Holy One of God. So how does Jesus tackle this problem? Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Now, we read that without really feeling what it means to be in the presence of somebody who's demonically possessed. And it was very, very prevalent. It's very, very visual in Jesus' day. And I've read a lot of commentaries, and I can't really tell you for sure what it is, but many people, many of the commentators look and say it was so prevalent in Jesus' day where often it's hidden behind the scenes because of the conflict between good and evil, of Jesus' ministry and the devil trying to stop his ministry at every point he can. And so here's this man crying out and challenging Jesus Christ, and Jesus rebukes him and says, Be silent! And there's silence. The authority of the Son of God. In the midst, if you were there, it's one thing to read this, but you want to talk about horror and terror? Have somebody stand up in the middle of the service and start with a demonic voice challenging the preacher of the Word of God. And as this hush comes upon them, he says, be quiet, and suddenly there's silence. And then he says, come out of him. And now here is the great struggle that's taking place to demonstrate Jesus Christ's authority. Does this demon want to come out of this man? Every time you find somebody who's demon-possessed, the demons want to stay where they are. That's the home that they have. It's the way that they're working. It's the way that they're destroying someone's life. And you look at this, and it says here, and the unclean spirit convulsing him. So the man goes into convulsions. And as he's convulsing him, he says, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Any parents have toddlers? Any grandparents have grandchildren? And you're spoiling them, so you're causing this, grandparents, just to let you know, I would never do this, but you would do this. Okay, you, know, you get these toddlers, you tell a toddler is about two, two and a half not to do something that they want to do, and what, do they, what happens? You get screaming. You get stomping. You get protests. You get temper tantrums. You've got a demon basically who's having a temper tantrum on his way out because he doesn't want to go, and the God of the universe just said, you're going, and he's gone. 
And so you see this, and part of that whole spectacle, be one of the, do you want to be one of the spectators to all that? I like reading about it, but I don't think I wanted to be in the room. As this man, first you've got this demonic voice speaking up and challenging Jesus Christ. And then you've got Jesus Christ telling him to be silent and casting him out. And instead of just this quiet, the man just kind of goes limp in his seat. There's a cry, a great cry and scream, and the man's convulsing, but suddenly the demon's gone. He's out. And they looked around, and what does it say about the folks that were there? They were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? First, we get a new teaching with authority. And again, why is this demon there? You think about it. Why did Jesus Christ allow this demonic person to be there interrupting his teaching? His teaching is like none else. And in the midst of it, it's interrupted. It's there because here again is the stamp of God's approval on his ministry saying, this is truly my beloved son and he will conquer the power of evil and the devil. And he has power over all of those things. And so they look and they say, it's amazing teaching and it's teaching with authority. Look, he even casts out demons. This is just miraculous. And when you look at the miracles that Jesus Christ does, Jesus Christ is not performing miracles just to have a spectacle so people will think he's wonderful. Jesus Christ is not even just performing miracles to show his power, though it does. Jesus Christ is performing miracles to put God's stamp of approval on the message. And that's the amazing thing. Because that message is the message that you and I still carry, the power of God to salvation in the gospel. The message of the kingdom of God. And these Jewish people are looking and saying, the message is amazing. It comes from a powerful place. And then verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Because of his casting out of the demons, because of his teaching, because of all that he's doing, suddenly Jesus Christ's fame spreads. How does that happen? It was people who had come in touch with Jesus Christ who couldn't help but talk about it. And again, as I look at that, well, why is Mark sharing that with me? Why has the Holy Spirit left that for me? Because if you're sitting here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you have something to talk about. You have a whole world that their greatest need is what you have. And often his, frame, his fame doesn't spread abroad because of us, because we keep it to ourselves. And it's going to be amazing when we look at the book of Mark. Over and over and over again, Jesus is going to heal people and he's going to say, now don't tell anybody. Because they were already pressing in on him. They were already coming. We're going to see at the last part of this chapter, they were bringing all of their sick. They were bringing all of their demon possessed. They're saying, Christ, do something with all these folks. And he's trying to preach in the midst of all of this and bring the, the truth to these folks. And he's just saying, don't say anything. And what do they do almost every time? So then they went on and spread his news abroad. Isn't it ironic? Because the last thing he told us was what? Go tell people. All authority. Same thing happening is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go. Make disciples. Baptize. Teach. Spread my kingdom and build the church. And often we do the opposite. We don't spread it abroad. So as we look at this, we need to remember who we serve. We need to remember that we serve In his footsteps, we need to be challenged to go out over Thanksgiving, over Christmas. Don't let the Christmas holidays be about decorations, presents, eating too much again. 
Make Christmas about Jesus Christ. Share his fame abroad with family and friends. Any opportunity you get. Because Jesus Christ has the wonderful teaching of the gospel that goes with him. And it changes lives. Will you be faithful this season? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of what Mark has to teach us. But especially in this first chapter, there are so many powerful lessons in these stories for us. God, I pray that when we follow you, we'll follow you with a whole heart. Lord, I pray that we will be attentive to your teaching. The truth of God is amazing. Don't ever let it become commonplace to us, a matter of fact, but may we love your truth, may we seek your truth, may we study your truth, and then, God, may we see your power working around us in lives. You are a God who changes lives. Lord, give us the boldness to spread your fame abroad, to talk of Jesus Christ and his gospel throughout the coming days. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.